Mormon Stories is a production of the Open Stories Foundation and relies solely upon the support of people like you, its listeners. To help keep the podcast alive or to become a member of the community, please become a monthly subscriber by visiting mormonstories.org and clicking on the donate button on the right side of the page under support. All contributions to Mormon Stories are completely tax deductible and go towards producing the podcast and building communities and programs of support for Mormons like you. Thanks for your support. Welcome to another edition of Mormon Stories Podcast. I'm your host, John DeLynn. It's November 24th, 2015. And man, it's been a busy month. Uh, I feel like I've exceeded my podcast allotment and yet more stories keep uh, pulling me back in. And today's story is uh, a familiar story to Mormon Stories listeners. If any of you were around back in July of 2012, um, I interviewed uh, Bishop Bill Real. Uh, Bill was living in uh, Cleveland, Ohio area, the Sandusky Ward, and he was the first sitting bishop to come on Mormon Stories and, and sort of face the heat of questions uh, as a sitting bishop. And we talked about all sorts of stuff, about how he deals with matters of sexuality, you know, in his interviews with youth and uh, other types of things, uh, Mormon apologetics, etc. And it was a popular um, interview. And uh, after that, Bill started his own podcast. And uh, it's called, what, Mormon Discussion? Is that right, Bill? Mormon Discussion Podcast, uh, yep. And uh, it's been going strong for, what, a couple years, right? Yeah, we're on uh, our third full year. Yeah, third full year. And, uh, and honestly, there was a there was a point in Mormon stories where I was sort of explicitly trying to keep people in the church. Um, and, you know, at some point I just realized not only, you know, not only was that impossible that there was going to be a lot of people who just weren't going to be able to stay in the church. I think I also just decided that I didn't want to have that bias. And there's probably a part of me that felt like, um, maybe it wasn't always good for, for some people to stay. And so I, I sort of, you know, meandered away from that explicit mission more towards either neutrality or maybe even privileging, um, people who are, uh, transitioning away, but Bill sort of filled in that gap. And, uh, how many episodes have you recorded, Bill? Uh, I think we're just a little around 100, maybe 170, 175, somewhere in there. Yeah. And um, it, it's also – so So today we're going to be talking about a few things. We're going to be talking about, um, you know, Bill's podcast and kind of how he's transitioned since. But also recently there was a pretty significant dust-up on Reddit about um, – about Bill's activities with FAIR, the Foundation for Apologetic Information and Research. And Bill worked with FAIR um, for a certain amount of time, and then things kind of didn't go so well. So we're going to be talking about uh, what happened between Bill and FAIR, uh, the Apologetic Mormon Group. 
um, and his interactions with Brian Hales and others. Uh, and um, and we're going to talk about sort of some recent stances he's taken. Basically, he recently blogged on Wheaton Tears that he's in open dissent of the church's most recent apology towards LGBT members, and he wrote some justifications why. So we're going to try and cover all that today with uh, Bill Real. So, Bill, welcome. Welcome back to Mormon Stories. Excellent, John. Glad to, to be with you today and glad to have a chance to, to talk. So um, my so the first thing I question I had is you're no longer in Cleveland, Ohio. So uh, what's what's going on there? What, I, I think you moved to St. George. I didn't hear about that. So because of the podcast, I was invited by a lot of leaders to go around uh, and do some firesides in various places. I'd gone to Sarnia, Canada, went to uh, Indiana to talk to a bunch of uh, youth at a um, youth conference as the lead speaker for uh, that uh, event, as well as to talk to the young single adult ward at the Purdue University. Went out to, um, you know, Salt Lake City and moderated a fair Mormon session. And, and traveling around, one of the places I ended up going was Henderson, Nevada. And at being at Her- uh, Henderson, did a fireside for a group of Latter-day Saints who were struggling with their faith. And one of the individuals who came to attend Wait, that— Wait, did they, like, fly you to, to do these firesides? Yeah, they paid all expenses uh, for that one. Um, some of them I've paid the fuel and stuff to get there, but they put me up in their home and, and fed me and things like that. So but, who's paying the check for your travel for these firesides? Well, um, for some of them, it was the stake that I went to do the firesides for. For others, it was individuals who, uh, out of their own pocket, paid for that. Wow. I, yeah. I, I, I've always wondered... I know the Givens are traveling around doing these firesites, and I know that private donors are supporting that, but I didn't know that other other people were doing that too. Yeah, I don't have any kind of private donor who who pays my way to these things. It was just uh, whoever was asking me to go, uh, generally, if it wasn't too far, I would take care of paying for the fuel in my vehicle, but then they would put me up and feed me. Uh, but some of them have been ones that have been further away, like the one in Henderson, and the individual uh, paid for the entire trip there and, and took good care of uh, me and my wife over there. Um, when I went to, this, to do this fireside in Henderson, one of the gentlemen who uh, attended that owns a, uh, a business in St. George that uh, is four stores. It's a pawn shop. And so he said, Bill, you're really good at connecting with people. You're good at communicating. You're good at uh, you know, talking to people and helping them with things this would be a really good fit and wondering if you'd like to try it. And so, you know, I was selling floor covering back in Ohio and uh, worked for a nice company, but it was not going to go anywhere. And this just provided a lot better opportunity. So we flew out to St. George, actually flew into Vegas. And then uh, this gentleman's brother drove me into to St. George and we kind of stayed for about a week trying the business out. And it just felt like a really good fit. Wow. So you've been to St. George for a couple of years? Uh, no, I just moved here nine months ago. Okay. Great. And um, okay, so you've been uh, in St. George recently. Let's go back and just talk about really quickly um, kind of why you started your podcast and what you were hoping to do. Sure. So essentially, John, after the interview with you, um, I felt like this would be like a – so the first thing I asked myself is how hard is this podcasting thing? And So I went out to Walmart and got myself a little cheap little headset and Went on to Podbean and created a free account and all that, and 
just said, okay, what I'm going to do is I want to be like John DeLynn, but I want to walk the other side of the line where I validate that issues are real, that there are problems out there, which I don't think very many people were doing at the time um, outside of yourself and, and you know Dan Witherspoon with Mormon Matters. And I wanted to say, look, these things are real. These are problematic, but here's new ways in which to think about these and to kind of work through them, not in a mental gymnastics way, but rather in a way that we acknowledge there's evidence on both sides and we just move forward in faith. Okay, and so, and so yeah. that's different from apologetics how? Well, for me, when I look at apologetics, they often try to paint the critic as being deceiving as the facts not really being the facts, as church history is really not that messy if you just work through these 46 steps. And I tried to take a different approach in saying that, look, there really is valid criticism. There really is reasonable evidence on both sides. There really is reason for people to say the church isn't true and to walk away. And yet I still tried to say, look, there's also this other side and call on people to just have faith and to have hope and to not ignore or brush aside the criticisms, but learn to really truly live with doubt. Yeah, and and honestly, that uh, harmonizes with my sense of of traditional Mormon apologetics that they, you know, they either attack the the person asking the questions, or they uh, downplay, and sometimes they even you know gaslight. They they sort of, you know, make you feel like what you're thinking and feeling, you know, makes no sense and, and you have no right to even think about it. And um, and I've just never felt like that was an honest, uh, respectful way to deal with these very legitimate issues. And honestly, I, I agree. I just wanted – I wanted to feel a sense of empathy and validation from apologists where they could say, no, no, no. We still believe, and uh, you know, we we want to give you ways to believe, but we acknowledge the issues are tough, and just so many of them just did not seem able to do that. It's almost as if they had Asperger's syndrome or something and just couldn't empathize. Right, and I've felt some of that same experience. It's it's almost like to take any issue and validate that there really is some problems in this is almost like goes across the line of where apologists can go, maybe. And so I, I certainly, um, maybe to throw them just a little bone, I certainly think there's a group of people that their, their way of doing things, it works for. I mean, we talk, you know, you've talked a lot about Fowler's stages of faith. I've talked a lot about that in my podcast. I think for those who are in that stage three, where they see things very black and white, where things fit together really simply, I think apologetics works really well. And I think when, you know, certainly having spent time with Fair Mormon, there were lots of messages from people that they sent message, you know, emails to and calls to and tried to help that said, look, you really did a great job helping me. And I, I really do think they appeal and help and contribute to a, a group of Latter-day Saints. Uh, and I think they're helpful to them, if that makes sense. Yeah, sure. I, I, they, they must be or they wouldn't really be able to keep existing. Um, yeah, so so talk about how you got involved with FAIR. So after the episode with you, John, it was really well received, I think, in conservative Mormon corners. 
people were somehow finding me even and sending me messages and just saying, Bill, that was really good how you and John were able to have this, you know, two hour dialogue and yet you were able to in an intelligent way and in articulate way talk about ways in which to be faithful and to somehow counter to some extent, some of the, those criticisms. After that was over and having started the podcast, um, it wasn't too long after that that Steve Densley, who is now, I think, the VP with FAIR, but at the time I think he was a, a step or two lower on their, on their leadership uh, ladder, he approached me and said, Bill, you, you know, that was really good. Your podcast is really great. Any chance you want to come on and uh, to on board with FAIR and help us out with our podcast? And it started off as him wanting to interview me which uh, ended up being two episodes where FAIR, uh, part one and part two, just kind of discussed my faith journey. And then after that, I started recording episodes that I shared both on my podcast as well as theirs. Okay. And so what did, so did you like join FAIR and become like a sort of a volunteer or an unofficial staff member? No, it was official. They, they have kind of different tiers of membership you can take. One of those involves an application as well as a, a, a small fee to, to be a part of them. And, and I did that. And so I was in you know, somewhat of the inner circle where you know, there's kind of a private message board behind the scenes where messages uh, get talked about and issues get kind of worked out privately before messages get sent out to people. And, and so I was part of that. Yeah, I was I was actually as I remember part of that uh like 10 years ago. Uh, I I got I got booted out of that that private group. I'm not sure if it's exactly the same private group, but it was some group that that was private that you had to kind of apply to join. Um right. it, it, I didn't last very long. <laughs> no, and and I wasn't, you know, I wasn't in the top hierarchy. I think they have kind of a separate group where the top 7 or 8 people or so probably are having conversations, but the group I was a part of, I mean, all the members of Fair that you would know uh, from having written blog posts or done other things within apologetics, they were all commenting in those discussion boards. Uh, and so, and it wasn't something that was available or visible to the general public. Yeah. So what, um, and I think my sister's, my sister's in that group, my sister, Julianne. Yeah. I've talked to her several times. Yeah. So, uh, all right. So your main responsibilities for fair were then what? You know, when, when you're working with them. Yeah, so they they kind of had me – and I don't want to say I was heading up the podcast. It's kind of a multiple group of contributors. But of those people who were contributing to their podcast, uh, I was the one who was putting in, I think, the most material at the time. And I was quite proud of that because uh, in 2013, I believe it was, Fair Mormon won uh, the, award, the, uh, the award for the podcast awards. And uh, this was in Vegas, where they had the you know the uh, the get together where they hand out the awards, and and whoever mentioned like four of us, and I was one of the names that was mentioned in that in that award ceremony. It, it was you know it went over really good. I contributed probably twenty to thirty episodes for them over the course of that time. I think I was with them maybe a year, maybe a little less. And uh, mostly my responsibilities were just on the podcasting end and to answer. Uh, emails of uh, and messages that people had sent in asking questions about the church and the critics. So you'd produce episodes, answer questions. Um, that was your main responsibility? Yeah. And the episodes, like I said, would release both on my podcast as well as Fair's. I would put my own music and intros in for mine and put their music and intros in for the exact same episodes that I would put on their site. 
Got it. Did the, did the, did Farrah have a sense, you know, this was during the day where, you know, my podcast is going strong, where Mormon expression was going strong. Infants on Thrones started up in 2012, um, uh, you know, Year of Polygamy uh, and and Feminist Mormon Housewives podcast. So d- did Fair have a sense for how their podcasts, uh, you know, competed with these others in terms of downloads and, and listener support? Uh, I wasn't privy to any of that. I got several pieces of feedback from Fair's leadership that – once my episodes were on, that they're, they were being well-received and uh, I think in some ways helped the listenership. But to say what those numbers are, I have no idea. They never, they never let you know. No, they never said how many people were listening. Yeah, because um, as I look at sort of iTunes ranking of the FAIR podcast, it always seems really, really far behind sort of the mainstream Mormon podcasts. And so – it it never seems like those podcasts have caught on beyond sort of a really restricted group. And that may just be that, that there are few Mormons who really gravitate towards the fair approach, but it sounds like they never gave you data to really know. No, no, we were never me. At least I wasn't, I was never aware or privy to, to what the statistics were on who was listening and how many people were uh, visiting the site or, or uh, downloading the episodes. Okay, well, cool. Well, so you were doing great work for FAIR, and then what happened? So along the way, I mean, part of it is when I'm responding to individuals who are writing into FAIR with questions, I'm writing back answers that validate that these issues are messy and that they're on different levels problematic. The other thing I'm doing is I'm, I'm uploading episodes for their podcast where I'm interviewing Richard Bushman or Terrell Givens or having commentary on my own about what is doctrine and in those episodes, also acknowledging that things are messy. And it didn't take long for Fair's leadership to start emailing me or messaging me and just saying, hey, Bill, you know, we really can't do that. We really can't validate that the critics have uh, reasonable, uh, you know, criticisms that members of the church will, you know, those, they'll struggle over that. Their foundations will crash if we say those things. And I can't really not walk that line. For me, knowing church history, realizing the messiness of our of our faith, the only acceptable route that I had was to validate that those things were messy. And so the episodes would do that, my messages would do that, and I was constantly getting feedback from Fair that hey, you can't really you can't really go this far. And and so there were lots of private conversations behind the scenes where we do, you know, 10 emails back and forth in the course of a day of me trying to explain why this is the only truly workable way to to deal with the church's history is to be completely open and to validate that there's evidence on both sides and that was always kind of a tension because I think fair to their defense fair has always seen themselves as wanting to have the approval of the church and for them to do that they really can't ever go outside the bounds of what the church says or acknowledges. So until the church says, hey, we goofed up and we made a mistake, fair is never going to say the church made a mistake on something. And and as you know, John, as people come through these faith transitions, there comes a point where they're aware enough of the messiness. They're aware enough that they respect their own inward authority over extrinsic authority, that that kind of stuff just no longer works for them. And they have to be able to see 
things as messy if they're going to stay in. And simply turning a blind eye to it didn't work. So eventually over time, FAIR, it just, it just got to the point where they saw there was a fork in the road and, and we were both going to be on separate paths. And, uh, and so I got kind of a, a snarky email from, from one of FAIR's leadership where they essentially said, from here on out, Bill, don't tell anybody that you are with FAIR. Uh, you can contribute episodes, but we're going to have to listen to them completely and give them full approval. And from here on out, we want you to, you know, not do this or do that. And, and it just got to the point where it was apparent that that relationship wasn't going to be tenable. And so do, we, do you remember some of the specific issues that you were showing validation of or empathy for that they didn't like? Do you remember? Or is that too much detail? Um, I'm trying. You know, of course, we're talking three years ago. Yeah. Um, some of the specific issues. I mean, I think it's you know, if you were to take your survey and talk about the twelve things that that members of the church struggle with the most within our theology and history, it's those. It's it's saying essentially that within the LGBT issue that this is this is something we all need to have more empathy for. Uh, there were discussions behind the scenes in fair that sometimes would attack personally people like you and uh, and me and and one or two other individuals would pipe in and say hey let's not let's not make these criticisms personal let's let's attack them on the substance of what they're saying and that wouldn't be well received and so some of it was uh, criticisms on a personal level some of it was theological issues where uh, or doctrinal issues where I would say, look, you know, the critic, you know, the critic has a point when he says, you know, X, Y, Z, we need to at least validate that this is problematic. Uh, in fact, I would even say just to tie it in, Richard Bushman recently was on my podcast where he just frankly admits that, you know, in some ways the Book of Mormon is problematic in terms of having 19th century um, wording in it phrases in it, uh, things from, you know, the King James Version of the Bible that he also finds problematic. And to some extent, I just don't think Fair would really be comfortable with having those kinds of conversations. Were you there when Dan Peterson was kind of booted from the Maxwell Institute? I'm trying to remember if that was just after I left, I believe, that uh, Dan um, was no longer with them. Did you get the sense that he was kind of in charge? With the Maxwell Institute? Of FAIR. No, I never got the impression that he was in charge of FAIR. I do I do think that there are people behind the scenes who donate money and maybe in significant ways to them because some of the messages from FAIR's leadership to me trying to rein me in would express the idea that there were certain people they had to keep happy. There were certain people that they had to make sure were comfortable with what they were doing that were big supporters of uh, them as an entity. But I never got the impression. I mean, I certainly had some conversations with Dan within FAIR, as well as like uh, Lou Midgley um, and I think Bill Hamlin as well. So I knew that they were a presence there, but I never got the feeling that they were the main decision makers. And did you feel like Midgley and and Dan Peterson and and Hamlin, did you feel like they were good for Mormon apologetics or bad? Or did you have an opinion about that? So I'm only sharing my personal perspective, and I realize that sometimes having conversations on the internet can be not a full exposure to the the real you know humanness of who we are. But for me, when I listen to, and I'll just be specific, Lou Midgley, for instance, 
he just seemed very unempathetic to people, very unempathetic to those who struggled when people would have really serious questions about the church where they were throwing their doubts on the table. It just felt like those weren't really validated or someone didn't take time to kind of, you know, these guys didn't really take time to put their arm around these people and say, look, I totally get where you're coming from. You know, these things, these things would certainly give reason for any of us to pause. I just don't feel like that's really the approach of some of those guys. So they, there's just, for, for you, they kind of lack empathy. Yeah. And, and it felt that way. It felt like it was this goal of protecting the church at all costs. And so when you take that mode, I think you really can't let any criticism in as being real and, and valid. And so these guys, and I've seen it. I mean, I see where people would write in and say, man, I'm really hurting. I'm struggling over these issues. And some of these guys would write back and just throw out like the answer and not understand why these people struggling were having a hard time. And it just seemed really cold. Yeah. Yeah. That's been my experience too. So that's interesting. Okay. So you got this nasty snarky letter that says, you know, we'll still take your content, but don't tell anyone you work for us. That's kind of weird, right? It is kind of weird. And at that point I write back like, you know, I don't get this. This doesn't really make sense. I mean, I'm happy to understand that I need to walk a certain line. Let's spell that line out. Let's talk about it. I know that when this happened, uh, Again, you know, Steve Densley essentially removed me once I replied back and was frustrated. Um, I also went on, and I'll, I'll be honest, this is probably my weakest moment. I went on and essentially took out my material from their podcast just to hold on to it and to see how this was going to play out because I, what I thought was going to happen was going to be them to essentially separate from me. And yet here I've got like 10 more episodes in their queue that are going to go in. And, you know, my material's there and they're essentially using my stuff but want me to kind of disappear. So I removed that and, and of course, that wasn't the nicest thing on my part. He sends me a message back and, and didn't really understand why I did that. Behind the scenes, though, other guys from FAIR are calling me and saying, Bill, we got to figure out a way to, you know, repair this. We want you in. And in the midst of them saying they want me in and they want to kind of figure out ways to fix this, uh, Steve or whoever completely removes my ability to log into the system at all. And at that point, it was just, and again, I think it was, you know, on both sides. At that point, it just became um, an impossibility to fix. And so we just went our separate ways. We did do one more episode where John Lynch interviewed me, where we had a conversation about kind of splitting off amicably and, and peacefully and kind of going our own separate ways and recognizing that, um, that we both kind of reach a different audience. And John also made the comment in that episode, and I took him at his word. Now, this is John Lynch. He, he said that, you know, Fair will continue to use some of my material if it's fitting and appropriate uh, for the podcast. And as time went on, it became obvious they were never going to use my stuff again. Uh, so anyway, so it was just, just at kind some of point, a they, they saw you as a threat and they needed to lock you out. Yeah. And I, again, I think that in some ways, because I really wasn't able to walk the line they wanted, I was maybe hurting their credibility with the church to have some guy on who says these criticisms are real and valid was kind of counter to what they needed to do to keep the church's support and their donors. Right. And their donors, whoever those, whoever those people are. Yeah. And there's a part of me that feels like that makes sense. Just that, you know, they've got to please their, 
um, you know, constituents and their donors and their benefactors and, and you cross the line, right? Right. And I don't, I don't hold any animosity for that. I think that, uh, they have a right to kind of have their, their mode of operandi, their way of doing things. And, and if someone doesn't fit into that, you certainly have a, you know, room yeah. to remove that person. It'd be like if I joined the rotary and I didn't want to follow any of the rotary's rules and mm. out I go. So I certainly respect that. But on the same time, for people like me who are still trying to keep people in the church, I can't tell you the number of times I've gotten private messages from their members or, or emails from their members uh, who have basically said, you know, because you do things differently than us, you're a wolf in sheep's clothing. You are a walking the fine line of apostasy. And yet here I am, I mean, for three years, yes, I validate issues, but I've been trying to, with all my might, to, to empathize with people and to help people stay in. And again, their, your understanding of their main concern is that you were showing too much empathy for people who struggle and acknowledging excessively the legitimacy of, of uh, problems with the church's history and approach. Right. I mean, so let's say you come to the fair and you send a message in and you say, hey, guys, I don't get this Book of Abraham thing. This is, this is a mess I can't figure out. The what they would you know just do by standard is they would send you an email back, list all the reasons that this works or the things we don't know, and just leave it at that. Very rarely would you ever see somebody from Fair send a message and say, "Yeah, this is really problematic." And I think, I think for those who have moved out of stage three within Fowler, those who again whose authority is within themselves as well as who no longer see black and white. That kind of black and white argument of it's either all this side or all that side simply doesn't work, and uh, but that's the line that Fair walks. Okay, and so yeah, so Fair targets stage three, and you target stage four or five, and and in Fair's mind, those need to be separate. Yeah, in Fair's mind, validating the issues is going is in, going in too stage far. Stage four, yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah. So they're just, they've got a clear mission and really clear boundaries. Right. Right. Okay. And I respect that. So, so what happened? Any, anything else happened after that? In terms of fair? No. I mean, um, I felt like in some ways the split probably ended as nice as possible. Um, I went off kind of my own way and, and I tried to make a concentrated effort to say very little negative about them. I, in fact, I had somebody from FAIR just message me a few days ago after this, this recent event that we'll get into where they, they accused me that the whole split and the whole uh, reason they removed me from their, their website was because I was being overly critical of FAIR. And I, I challenged the guy to find where I did that, and he couldn't. Um, I, I might have made a comment or two, but I think in each of those comments, I have validated that FAIR – is a good thing for a group of people that it works for some. Um, but other than that, no, not a whole lot else has happened in terms of uh, Fair Mormon. Okay, so you bid. So you left them in 2012. Is that right? Uh, 2013, I believe. Okay. Maybe late 2013. Okay. Uh, maybe the beginning of 2014 or so. So you worked for them for about a year, year and a half, something like that. Yeah, year, year and a half, um, and again moderated one of the sessions at one of their conferences. At, at uh, the Fair Mormon Conference in – Yeah, out in Salt Lake City. Salt Lake. Originally, I was supposed to be part of a panel with Don Bradley, Janet Eyring, and Maxine Hanks. 
And then at the end, um, Mac, or, uh, Mike Ash was supposed to moderate it, and he had other things he had to do and wanted to kind of pass that responsibility off. So rather than be part of the panel, I moderated it, although I added several comments in during the discussion as well. Okay. And so what, what's happened recently? I don't know. I mean, that's the, I think that's the question of the day is that uh, three months ago, and I thought it was more recent only because I had just discovered it recently, but uh, some people who are good with the internet went uh, back into the archives to try and find out when the, sh- when the change happened. But it looks like three months ago, they completely removed any presence of me from their website. Every episode I had done, uh, they removed me from the transcript of the Fair Mormon session they removed me from the picture of that session. I mean, any kind of connection t- from me to the website uh, at Fair Mormon was completely uh, just it just completely disappeared. It, I should have known something was happening. Uh, I got a a message from Blair Hodges, who uh, works for the Maxwell Institute, saying that he was trying to find the interview where uh, I had interviewed him for their website, and he couldn't find it. And so I sent him the exact same episode from mine, and he thanked me. But it probably should have hit me then that something was going on. But uh, for whatever reason, these guys have just made me disappear. Okay, so you've sort of – Bill Real has gone down the memory hole at Fair. Right, which seems kind of odd, right? I mean, Fair Mormon will defend the church and say, hey, look, the church doesn't hide history. And yet, in some ways, here's Fair Mormon hiding history. And, and I get it. If you want to remove the podcast episodes, fine. If you want to you know, cut me out of a picture, great. But to alter a transcript of a, a session in your conference to make somebody vanish almost kind of seemed odd. And when I, I put it on Facebook that they had done that, and I, I made very little comments in the post, I mean, lots of people jumped in and it seemed to kind of brush them the wrong way too. It just – it didn't seem like something on the up and up. Now, you had mentioned that you had had interactions with, with Brian Hales and, and FAIR leadership between the time you left and now, what was the nature of, of those communications again? Is that Was that the wolf in sheep's clothing kind of thing? No, the, the Hales thing is kind of separate. Uh, Brian, so one of the episodes I did on the podcast was called uh, Handshakes and Drawn Swords. And what I tried to do was make some middle ground for people like the Van Allens who are struggling with Section 132. And what I wanted to do was say, look, we paint this in a black and white way, right? Either Either an angel comes with a sword and Joseph is obedient – to that, and he's doing what the Lord is calling him to do. Or Joseph's a fraud; he's making this up. He's just wanting to have you know intimate relations with lots of lots of women, and, and that's the reasoning. And, and we kind of within Mormonism have painted that dichotomy. And what I wanted to do is kind of go in and break new ground and say, hey, let's let's talk for a moment. Maybe you know, is it possible that an angel did come, but it wasn't an angel from God? And you know, I think there's section 119 where Joseph gives the revelation on handshakes, which seems kind of odd. This way of shaking the hand of an angel to know if it's a a good angel or bad angel. And you also have in the Book of Mormon in Lehi's vision of the Tree of Life where this angel comes in a robe, but rather than leading Lehi to the tree, he leads him into the mist of darkness. And once he leads him there, Lehi lets this angel go, gets on his knees and prays, and then God shows him where the Tree of Life is. So it's almost kind of this precedent that maybe evil angels could lead prophets and what I was trying to do, John, was to allow members of the church to theologically set 132 completely aside 
to set polygamy, polyandry, young brides, all that completely aside and still hold Joseph Smith up to be a prophet uh, in the church and to still have faith in the Book of Mormon. And when I did that, I got an email from Brian Hales who said that, hey, I, I've written a response to your episode. I, can't, I don't like your episode. Um, here's my response. And he sends me a PDF of an article titled The Unreal World of Handshakes and Drawn Swords. And so I write Brian back. I say, are you going to release this? I mean, you're, if you want to, you can. I mean, if you want to release this, just let me know so I can you know, respond back and forth and we can have a dialogue about the validity of the points we're both making. And he writes me back and says that you know, Laura essentially has told him you know, not to release it, that not without several modifications anyway to it. And I, I write him back and say, well, I'm going to let the – he asked me to remove the podcast episode. And if, he re- if I removed it, then he would just let it end there. And I said, I'm not going to remove it. I think this is good middle ground for a Latter-day Saint who wants to still have faith but can't handle Section 132. What was his, what was his concern about your, about your uh, theory? Well, I can hit the high points. He talks about Emma and the word virgins, right? We've heard this one talked about over and over again. He wasn't comfortable with me saying that Lehi could possibly be deceived by an angel, uh, even though I think that's a valid interpretation of that section of the Book of Mormon. Well, I mean, the Doctrine and Covenants makes it very clear that people can be deceived by angels. Yeah, but he, his point was the moment we allow for a prophet to be deceived by an evil spirit, then everything is up for grabs. And I basically said, yeah, you're right. And so that's the messiness of Mormonism is that we have to look at each of these instances where angels come and decide for ourselves whether – and decide and by the Holy Ghost whether those things are true. really weird because one of Fair's arguments is that prophets – whoever said prophets are infallible, right? Right, but tell me where they specifically name those instances. Yeah. Yes. That's the issue, right? The moment – it's okay to say prophets make mistakes, but it's – we, it's we not actually name okay to name ones. the mistakes. <laughs> right. We can never name a specific mistake. That's Unless awesome. Unless the church has come out and said they, this is a specific mistake. Which and they then don't. All of a sudden we can Which talk they about don't it. do. Right. Yeah. Right. <laughs> That's funny. Other, That's funny. <laughs> yeah. The other things they hit, he hit on was the Adam-God theory. One of the quotes from Brigham Young is that he knew by revelation that Adam was God the Father. And, and so Wait, he wanted Brian to kind Hales of pick apart it. What's that? Brian Hales knew that? Uh, I'm saying that in the Journal of Discourses, Brigham Young says that. Oh, yeah. And Brian Hales wasn't comfortable with me putting that as a, as a, um, as an, uh, a way in which to observe that we could receive false revelations from evil spirits or think we're getting revelation from God that has nothing to do with him. It might even be the polar opposite. Did, did he have a, a theory on what happened with Brigham Young and Adam God? Uh, I can I can read you his little section if you like. I mean, if if it responds, like I'd if if he, I think even Spencer W. Kimball said that that's not our doctrine. So right, but the argument back from Brian Hales and others would be that because that quote from Brigham Young or the Adam God theory itself is not canonized, then we really only should be dealing with canonized examples to refute these things. And I'm saying that's silly. If a prophet steps to the front and says, I've received a revelation that, you know, ABC has happened and ABC turns out to be disavowed by prophets a hundred years later, then I think that's an absolutely fair instance to show oh. that a prophet received uh, bad information from somewhere. Okay. So he, either- they're basically saying, uh, unless, unless it's canonized, it's just a prophet's opinion. Prophets are allowed to have opinions. And so they shouldn't be uh, listed as 
you know, uh, misrevelations or even really discussed because they're just opinions and everybody has opinions, right? Um, I would even go further than that. I mean, they would acknowledge that Brigham is claiming he got this from Revelation, but that until it's accepted by the church by common consent, it isn't something that applies to the church and hence really doesn't have a place in the discussion. Um, I think they would acknowledge that Brigham is claiming he gets this information from Revelation. It's not like it's just his opinion, but that by not being canonized, it doesn't apply to the church. And it's in, I guess in the end, it somehow becomes his opinion. Right. Yep. Okay. It seems weird though, right? I mean, if a prophet steps to the front and says, I've had a conversation with the divine, he's given me this information, I know it's true. And Brigham even goes further. He even says there's other saints around who also know by revelation that what I teach is true. And so this kind of community grasp that Brigham is receiving revelation on this subject only to have a hundred years later us say that it's false, I think opens the door to us examining 132. And and their argument of about it being canonized seems silly too, because the only difference between the Adam-God theory and canonization is one, one of the Pratt brothers, Orson Pratt, disagreed with it. He's the only one of the 15 who's on the record as doing so. The other issue is that we're simply putting all this importance on putting a vote before the people and everybody raising their hand in affirmation. And I mean, you could just about say anything in the church from a leadership perspective and 50, you know, 2% of the people would raise their hand in affirmation. It just seems like that's kind of a silly place to draw a line on what we can trust as revelation or discuss as prophets being deceived. Yeah. We, I, I interviewed Stephen Vesey of community of Christ and they take common consent really seriously. If he puts a revelation before the church, there are people that vote no, and, and he could be outvoted. Uh, that's the way I think it was originally established. But now people are just kind of – I mean, everybody raises their hand, and if there's any dissent, nobody pays attention really. And I think even you – know, I'll just make a little joke here. I think even if the prophet came out tomorrow and said, you know, next Tuesday, we're going to sacrifice all of our firstborns, I almost, th- I almost wonder if like 51% of the people would still raise their hand. Yeah. Well, no. The sky is purple, you know, and everybody right. would raise their hand, yeah. Right. Yeah. Because of this idea of, you know, leaders can't lead us astray. Yeah. Yep. And, and so really the way I interpret what Fair is doing is that they, they, they're in this unfortunate position of having to construct, d- defend the indefensible, basically. And so they create all these rationales that the church doesn't even necessarily substantiate or or might substantiate inconsistently. But it's all about creating plausible deniability so that um, people will never actually get to the point where they say, wow, this is a problem. Maybe it's not true. Um, They just want to provide as much defense, as much obfuscation or, you know, you know what they would call evidence or information or justifications to just prevent anybody from going down that slippery slope from three to four. Right. And and I should say here, this conversation, this back and forth with Brian Hales was completely separate from FAIR. But it should be noted, you brought to my memory, one of the things that happened with FAIR was that we created, uh, me, John Lynch, um, two or three other individuals, we created a discussion board. It was called FAIR Mormon Support. And it was a place where people who were struggling could go and just have kind of live conversations or post messages and get responses back and forth so that they could see how others were thinking through these issues. That too lasted about seven or eight months, and it became obvious to FAIR that any time you allow a group discussion on these issues 
that all it's going to do is validate how problematic some of them are. And so FAIR has since taken that completely down with with the caveat that they've got a note on there that this will this is being repaired and will come back up. But I really don't think that's going to happen. I think it's gone for good. And I, I think they see that it's not it's not a tenable position to hold to have group discussions on difficult issues and hope that the group all comes out the other side thinking all this all fits together perfectly. Um, going and, and, back that, and that just sure. real quick, that makes you know that jives with me. So like, I I can't get Michael Ash to come on my podcast, no matter you know, no matter what I've tried for years and years and years. You know, Daniel Peterson won't come back. You know, th- th- these people don't flourish with peer review with scrutiny. They can only flourish where the discussion is highly controlled and, uh, and limited. And, um, and then, and then, so, I mean, so that's one. And then the other is that they can't really thrive where there's empathy. And, um, because to have empathy is to sort of understand all perspectives and that can lead you out. And so it's just very clear that, that, that they, that, you know, it's what we already concluded for stage three Mormons, for Mormons who are Orthodox, who've never really doubted, who've never really uh, considered their, their testimonies in serious ways, but then they, they're confronted with difficult things. Their job is to limit the conversation, keep these people from being subjected to more serious discourse or peer review, and to just provide them with information that sort of allows for plausible deniability where it's like, oh, Hugh Nibley was smart, and if he was okay with Egyptian, I'm okay with it too. Oh, Brian Hales is really smart about polygamy. If he's figured it out, then I'll be okay too. Um, And just hope that they'll never really pursue their their doubts or questions in any serious way. Right. I would totally agree with that, and I would just add on that I don't think you'll ever really see you know, it used to be years ago before the internet, you would have these debates with with prominent Latter Day Saints and and critical evangelists on different issues with Mormonism, and and I've downloaded MP3s of some of those old things and listened to them. They're kind of fun to listen to, but I don't think you'll ever see that again because there's just too much information out there that any time a an apologist uh, has a conversation with a critic, the end result, no matter what conclusion you make, the end result is going to be that this is messy. And there's a whole lot more out there than what I thought. And I just don't think that's the direction they want to take people. And I always felt like the FAIR website with this big, huge directory of all the problems was actually a, a wolf in sheep's clothing in and of itself. Because sure, you can you can go to FAIR to get answers to one question, but then that exposes you to a hundred more questions. Did they ever acknowledge that or talk about that? There were lots of questions, you know, from people outside of fairs who would say, you know, I came onto your site to find an answer to this one issue and, you know, oh my goodness, I just discovered there's 300 other questions I need to tackle. And I've spent lots of time in phone calls with people struggling who said, yeah, I went on to fair and was hoping to find this one answer to one question. And then I ended up spending two weeks on their site not sleeping at night and wrestling with all these different issues that I had no clue about. I don't. I don't think fair is. I don't. Obviously, fire is not trying to hurt anybody. But I think just the pure nature of laying the problems on a table is going to catch people off guard when they didn't know there was even a problem to begin with. Yeah. Yeah. 
It's uh, it's tricky. They have a really hard job. I guess to their credit, uh, several years ago, I, I had a friend who worked for Bonneville Communications, and he and he told me that he was consulting fair, and so he asked me all my advice of what I would do to make fair better. And one of the things I I told him was well that they needed to show more empathy, um, which I, clearly you felt too, but also they needed to stop attacking, uh, you know, people and. It, in all fairness, uh, no pun intended, it does seem like they've backed off on attacking people. Brian Hale still kind of does that, and and it seems like uh, you know Greg Smith still kind of does that. But th- it seems like they do that more outside of fair. So is it is is that fair to say that fairs dropped the ad hominem a little bit? I think to some extent they have. I still see a few of their members. I mean, I get private messages from a member or two. Uh, who still wants to kind of you know rein me in? Uh, I still get uh, a few posts on my Facebook page. There was a while there where several members of uh, Fair Mormon would come on my Facebook post and post a criticism of what I was what I was saying. But the moment I would ask a question, which is obviously going to lead them to admitting that this is more problematic than what they're saying, they would just drop out of the conversation. I don't know if that was necessarily any kind of anything personal. But I do think that they're still trying to kind of control the narrative in ways that I don't think they really have power to do anymore. Do you think that the new essays from the church are making fair less relevant? Well, let me – I'll put it this way. I think lots of people – of the hundred or so people I've talked to in the last two months in emails and phone conversations, those who are struggling with the – with the history and trying to make it work and trying to stay in, I bet half of them, whereas if you go back a couple of years ago, the majority of them would be, you know, they would be encountering anti-Mormon stuff. Half of those today, I think, are in, kind of entering their faith transition by reading the essays. Um, I think by the church coming out and acknowledging some of this stuff is messy, I just, it obviously hurts the ground that fair needs to walk. If fair is going to walk ground where they don't admit that, uh, it becomes kind of counter to what they're doing to, in any way, shape, or form, kind of go against the essays. So I think it makes them a little less relevant. Yeah. And and in your experience, for for the people that came to fair to get uh, answers, did you get a sense that they just left fully satisfied and and never returned, or or did you ever get the sense that fair was sort of a for many a way station on to doubt? later um and the fair was just sort of a temporary at minimum like you you know at minimum a a temporary station where they would eventually lead into the stage four kind of doubting area and in many cases they went to fair for support but it ended up accelerating their disaffection out uh or their doubting would you say that's fair fair so no pun intended sure sure let me say it this way uh, I know of probably seven, eight, nine people who were with were in fair at the same time I was in fair inside part of the organization, and I know now those folks have moved on. They've sent me messages and just said, you know, fair, you know, once you get to a certain point of thinking these things through, these issues become much more problematic than I initially thought, and so many of these folks who were in fair answering the questions have stepped away and said, look, I mean, it's just, you know, not that they're out, not that they've left the church, not that they don't believe, but that they see fair as 
no longer kind of meeting them where they're at. And so they've stepped away from the organization. As far as people outside of FAIR messaging, um, some people would message and, and you know, email back and say, thank you for the answer. I, I, think, I think, again, most stage three people are really helped by it. If you're in stage three, and, and as you pointed out in your podcast on stages of faith, you know, 80% of the human population gets to that stage and never exits it. And so for 80% of the people, I think Fair Mormon, to some extent, shows them that there's answers out there. Sometimes it's just the idea that I don't know the answers, but somebody else does, and so that takes care of it for me. But I think for those who are really reading this stuff, thinking more deeply, uh, I think a large chunk of them move beyond FAIR and it's just no longer helpful. Okay, so FAIR is effective for people who either are, you know, aren't serious in their questioning and doubts. Um, maybe that's the best way to say it. If somebody's just casually questioning, and they just want some sort of comforting reassurance that smarter people than them, in quotes, have already figured this out. FAIR serves that group very effectively. I would say for most, that's the case. I, I don't want to paint it like anybody who's thinking, anybody who's reading can't see things that way. There's obviously intelligent people. There's obviously people at FAIR Mormon who are super brilliant, who are you know very informed on the issues. And still hold a what I would call still a much more orthodox belief. I just think that for most people who get to a point where they're thinking deeply about these issues, uh, I don't know that Fair Mormon any longer helps them or applies them. It's a great place to go to get information. If I'm looking for a quote really quick, it's a great place to go to find the info. Uh, but as far as it actually answering people's doubts and helping them, I think once you're out of stage three, most of those people are no longer – benefited, at least not in a large amount, by what FAIR does. Okay. That makes sense. So let's talk about uh, your uh, – unless there's something else you wanted to talk about. Well, I do want to add a little bit on to the Brian Hales um, yeah, yeah. conversation. One of the things that Brian threw out was, Bill, you're not, you're not really thinking this through. We have, a Mary, we have Mary Elizabeth Rollins um, who reports that the angel came three times, and she talks about how Joseph told her – that the the that he knew the angel was from God, and so therefore we just know that the that this is how it happened, and uh, you know Joseph wasn't deceived. But one of the things that really frustrated me with this point that he makes is that this is like sixty two years after the revelation, and it's like when she's like eighty seven years old. And my first thought goes to how many times in apologetics do we discount witnesses or discount testimony or discount information? or second or third-hand accounts, or even first-hand accounts, because the time span between when it was said and when the person's reporting it is so much time. And to say somebody's you know 87 years old, 62 years after the fact, and yet she becomes really the only strong piece of evidence you have to hold up that this middle way that I'm providing is completely uncredible. And so... It was that kind of stuff that Brian would go into. I messaged Brian back, and I was super nice. I mean, again, I'll, I'll be happy if, if you know listeners want my side of the conversation. I'm happy to share it. I wouldn't share his. But I'm super nice in how I'm trying to talk to, to him. And I'm saying, look, I totally respect where you're coming from. I've, I've always said nice things about you and Laura. I'm not, I don't have any personal agenda against you. It's just I draw a different conclusion here, and I just want to provide some middle way. It's not even that I 
held this theory to be the most valid in my own mind. It was that I wanted to give people a place at the table to still be faithful and to, to set this aside. And Brian writes me back and he says, quote, I hope your podcast dies. And he wants to take my logo t-shirt and just destroy it. And it was this kind of uh, rhetoric from email to email that just kind of like set me back and said, man, this guy, this when somebody counters let me back up. I think that when because he's put so much work in, he's got so much information, he has so many points of historical data that he makes the assumption that because he's done all the homework that his conclusions have to be the right conclusions. And when somebody comes in and says, I don't really agree with your conclusions, I don't know that he really takes that very kindly. And I felt like in this correspondence with him, I really tried to be kind and nice, but say, look, I'm not pulling my episode, and I'm happy to have a discussion with you on why I feel that this has a a seat at the table. And all I got back was like this just nastiness. And and the four or five people that I value their opinion as being – is being kind of neutral. I've, I've let them read those messages and they say, man, I can't believe this guy says some of these things. And I just want to make it clear that with, with him being a part of FAIR, I know that in the last, I think, year, him and Laura have been major contributors with them in terms of helping them behind the scenes, that this whole me disappearing from FAIR Mormon, it just kind of goes in line with all these other things that have happened. It just feels like whenever you take a stance outside of of where they want you to be, they get really um, they can get really frustrated with you. Yeah, I, you know uh, the best way. F- you know, I, I've I've obviously had my you know uh, run-ins with the Hales uh, in the past as well, and I know many other people have. And you know, I it's it, it would be easy for me to just say they're nasty, you know, mean mean people it, to some degree. I mean, anyone can be delightful under controlled circumstances, but um, I, I think I think to to me, what it comes down to is a quote that I I posted recently on my Facebook page, attributed to Thomas Paine, and it says, "Belief in a cruel God makes a cruel man," and I just think that that the Hales, Dan Peterson, Lewis Midgley. Bill Hamlin, all of them who are sort of associated with acting kind of unchristlike and mean-spirited at times, I think they're put in a very difficult position of having to defend what's indefensible. And, right. you know, someone like Mike Ash can, or even Terrell and Fiona Givens or Richard Bushman, they can be polite, but it's only because they never actually open themselves up to scrutiny. They'll only interview with people who are friendly and they'll have these secret firesides or these, you know, public radio appearances where they're never really asked the difficult questions. Um, and that, that allows them to really keep their cool. Uh, but, you know, but, but Hamblin and Peterson and the Hales, they put themselves out in the fray by having to actually, you know, d- directly challenge, you know, people who are asking legitimate questions and providing credible uh, concerns. And I think that that makes them, that turns them into people who, who behave in unchristlike ways because they're defending positions that really are unchristlike. And I think it makes you unchristlike to be put in the position of defending unchristlike things. That's my theory. 
Yeah, and I know like in my correspondence with Brian, one of the things he said was, you know, he called the Van Allens uh, anti-Mormon. And like to me that just rubbed me wrong because here are these guys who who, you know, at least as of their kind of being public about 132 wanted to be in, wanted to stay in, wanted to be faithful but simply had an issue with this one this one topic. And for us to just say like anybody who finds a problem with one issue in the church and can't really can't really overcome it easily is anti-Mormon just seems to be like over the top and, and mean spirited. And anyway, it just, it gets to be kind of um, normal for me behind the scenes to, to see some of that kind of happen. And I think these guys are really careful not to do a lot of that in public because I, I obviously to do it in public, um, you're going to call attention to the fact of, of your own behavior uh, I will say too, with like people like Terrell Givens and Richard Bushman, I've, I've interviewed them several times. So have you? I, I think they're genuinely good people who realize that this stuff is messy. And I've had private conversations, you know, with them, with with Adam Miller, with uh, Sam Brown, with you know Fiona and 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 others. And I and I wouldn't name names necessarily, but in my private conversations with different scholars from the church that I respect. Um, they're a lot more open in private and have, and have expressed that they, they to some extent, struggle with some of these same things that, uh, that you and I do. Right. But they, but they can't mention it. No, and, and obviously I wouldn't tell you which ones it was. So, yeah. Um, yeah, yeah, but, yeah. But, you know, because obviously they're, they're, they have a right to do things kind of in their own, their own way. For, and, and, uh, and, you know, I'll just say again – uh, I I don't see, you know, I, what I try and do these days is just have empathy, and I just think the Hales and Dan Peterson and Midgley and Hamblin and people in that category, I just think they've they've got a really hard job where they're in the role of defending the indefensible, and that turns people, um, it, that that leads people to act in ways that they probably wouldn't otherwise act, you know? Yeah. And, and you'll have, you know, anytime you have a discussion, I mean, these guys want to defend the church and I get that. I, I try at times when I can to defend the church as well. And, and they try to do that, but the moment you throw questions back on them where, where they're going to have to either walk down the path of admitting this is messy, they choose not to do that. And instead they tend to kind of get upset and use kind of more of this emotional argument of, of being critical of you or being critical of, of, you know, the mode in which you're asking questions and to kind of paint you as the bad guy, because I think that's the easiest way kind of out of that conversation rather than having to deal with the fact that uh, church history is full of paradoxes and contradictions and, and our theology has some of that as well. Yeah. So anything else you want to say about uh, Brian and Laura? Or is that it? Um, I will say one more thing. If you want to know every point that Brian Hales uh, brought up in his uh, document that never got published, uh, you can go on to part two of the episode of Handshakes and Drawn Swords, and I address every single one of those points there. And I think when I'm done, I think I still show there's room for that, uh, that middle way to have a seat at the table. But that's it. That's essentially it with Brian and Fair. And I wish, you know, I wish all of them the best of luck. I just – this whole thing with me disappearing off their website, especially the transcript of the session, just seemed kind of dishonest. And I wanted, I wanted people within Mormonism to 
grasp and understand uh, kind of what has gone on behind the scenes that kind of maybe led up to this? Uh, got it. So I was really surprised to see uh, your recent post on Wheat and Tares because it, it, in my mind, it, and a lot of, to be honest, a lot of sort of post-Mormons, you know, sent me links and said, wow, this is a big deal. Bill Reel's kind of crossing a line here because you sort of, you sort of spoke out openly and publicly against a church policy. And that, that's kind of what got, gets people in trouble. I mean, you know, Rock Waterman, the Caldermans, me, Kate Kelly, like, you know, what happens these days when you're too vocal, you have too much of a following, and then you contradict the church. So talk about that. Sure. So I certainly uh, still have a testimony of the church. And, and if you want, we can talk maybe about what that means. I certainly believe in the church. I have hope in the church. But when this policy came out, it just seemed so contradictory in so many ways inside my mind as I was trying to think it through. And at first, I gave uh, I gave them the benefit of the doubt, and I went off and I said, "Okay, let's let's listen, let's think this through, let's see if there's got to be some way of reconciling this with with our history, our theology, our doctrine." And and I just couldn't find it. And so finally, I'm just sitting there. Maybe you know, a week later, this, I wrote this on November 18th, like a week later, week and a half later, and I'm still just just as frustrated. I mean, Christofferson comes out, Elder Christofferson comes out. And I didn't feel like that really explained it or answered the issues. And then, you know, a week after that, then this first presidency letter comes out. And this first presidency letter seems to be kind of implying something very different from the original uh, intent of what was worded in the handbook. And that just didn't feel right. And so I wanted to get my thoughts all down. And as I started thinking about everything that just didn't feel right about this policy – it became obvious that there were a, you know, a large list of them. And so as I put this together, it, you know, it's my reason why I dissent against the policy itself. And, and they've already made it clear this is a policy. It's not doctrine. And I don't, I don't see the negativity in disagreeing with a policy. I, don't, I didn't know that in our church we all had to think the same way. I think Elder Uchtdorf made a comment in this talk, the four titles, that we're not all supposed to think the same way. We don't all have to agree on the same things. We can be unified in the midst of our diversity. And I guess we'll see if the church really believes that or not, because I've been an ad, uh, uh, you know, an ardent supporter of people staying in the church. I've been an ardent supporter of trying to make it work. Uh, I've been an ardent supporter of having faith that the church is true and hoping that it's true. And we'll see if they're going to let me dissent against the policy itself. I just, I can't make it mesh. It just, it seems so, so separated from the things that we stand for that um, I'm extremely uncomfortable. And I'm not, the, I'm not the only one, right? I mean, it seems like even the middle of the road Mormons are not comfortable with this policy. And a lot of them are speaking out as well. I saw the article from Grant Hardy where he doesn't really draw any conclusions or let his own feelings be known. But he frankly admits that you know there's a lot of problems in the policy trying to mesh it with our with our theology. Okay, so you know we we can link people to the blog up on on Wheat and Terrace, but why don't you just talk our listeners through at a high level the main reasons why you think this policy isn't consistent? Sure, I can even just lead the just 
you know, talk about the bolded points. One is that this policy diminishes agency, right? We are a, a eight-year-old kid in one situation is now restricted, even though his worthiness is not in question, he is restricted from participating in in the saving rituals of our church. In other words, he is not allowed to choose to join, even though there's nothing that personally withholds him from doing so within his own uh, within his own agency, other than the church saying you can't use it to to choose to join. The second one is that the policy diminishes the importance of the Holy Ghost. We've Elder Christofferson said they can come back when they're 18. Nothing is lost, and yet we teach so much in our church that the Holy Ghost is crucial to our teenagers in their formative years, and now we're telling these kids, yeah, you, you're okay without it. The next one is that it violates uh, D&C section 6827, which calls for all the eight-year-old children within the stakes of Zion to be baptized and confirmed. These, these kids may not be considered the children of Zion because of their parents, but these kids still have grandparents. These kids still have siblings. These kids still have aunts and uncles who are in the church. And, uh, and, and so obviously that affects you know, those relationships. Um, the next one, policy diminishes the value of ordinances, right? We're telling these, these kids, you come back when you're 18, but how many kids are really going to come back when they're 18? And how many of them are now going to be so bitter against the church, they'll never come back? And as in our theology, as we kind of walk down the route, when they get to the other side, how excited are they going to be to acknowledge those churches' ordinances and accept them? I think we're putting a wedge that diminishes the value of those ordinances. Um, policy seems to run contradictory to the teachings of Jesus, where he talks about the little children, that whoever harms one of these little ones, um, and also the idea that suffer the little children uh, to come unto me. The policy leaves open a lot of harming possibilities. Say you've got a sibling who joined the church before the policy, and now you're not going to turn, you know, you weren't born until after the policy. How are those situations going to be handled? And are some leaders going to follow the handbook and allow one member of the family to continue on the path of the gospel while the other kid doesn't? Uh, policy seems to contradict Article of Faith number two, where we've talked about men should uh, will not be punished for Adam's transgression, but for their own sins. And yet in some ways we're holding these children accountable. They're going to miss out on on the rituals, the experiences, the joy of the gospel because of the sins of their parents. Um, it seems deceptive to claim the letter was sent out a week later that it was a clarification of that original intent. When I look at the original handbook versus what came out in the end, I would call it more of a modification or a revision. Uh, the word clarification just seems to imply something that it really isn't. And so I, I wanted to bring that one out as well. Um, there's already a policy that covers the likelihood um, that this would be taken care of in most situations, right? The church already has a policy that both parents have to consent to their child joining the church. And so the only instances this affects a kid is where both parents are gay. That's the primary house the kids lives in. And both parents want their child to be in the church. And, and now you have to ask yourself if the main goal of the policy is to prevent those kids from being confused and to prevent those kids from uh, – to protect them in all ways, shapes, and form, these are kids that are going to want to come to church. These are parents who want their kid to come to church, and now they're going to be in church being isolated and marginalized, not being able to go through the same rituals that their, 
peers are going through. And I have to ask myself, are we doing them a greater protection? Are we doing them a greater service? Are we really preventing confusion? And I don't, see, I don't think the answer is yes. Um, another thing was that Elder Christofferson a while back said there would be no litmus test on this issue. And yet, in some ways, this now is a litmus test that members were free to support same-sex marriage. And yet, a kid who wants to get baptized at 18 now has to disavow uh, his, his parents' Uh, behavior of same-sex marriage. So in some ways, these kids affected now have a litmus test. The idea that this policy promotes promiscuous homosexual sex over legal, loving, committed relationships, that those relationships, the legal, loving, committed ones, are now seen as a worse transgression. And so some people out there in Mormonism who are homosexual will now choose to just lead, lead very secret lives um, and to still find that intimacy and companionship, and in some ways we've we've raised one ideal uh, above another, and I think we're going to do more harm to our community because of it. Um, the motive of protecting children, we talked about that. I'm just trying to think offhand. The modification not being in the handbook yet that concerns me. That soon as this, uh, soon as a leader is released and a new bishop or stake president is called, they're going to refer back to the handbook and know nothing of this letter. Sure, some leaders saved these letters. I served as a bishop. Uh, the three bishops prior to me didn't save any letters. And so the letters I found was from the fourth bishop before me. And so I don't have any confidence that across the board, every bishop and stake president will hang on to this letter and that every new bishop and stake president will be made aware of it. And so until it's officially in the lingo of the handbook, um, that becomes very concerning to me. Um, Book of Mormon teaches that uh, if there's a desire to mourn with those that mourn and comfort those that stand in need of comfort, then that is all is required to enter the waters of baptism. In other words, what have you against being baptized? And now we have to say, even if you fit all the um, personal requirements in terms of your testimony and in terms of the way in which you'll live your life. We're still telling these kids, sorry about your luck. And so as I put all those together and I spell them out in greater detail, I tried to be quick here. As I spell them out in greater detail in the blog, I end with a quote from Joseph Fielding Smith that says that when we do things in the church, when a leader says something or when the church teaches something that is contrary to the scriptures and to the doctrine, uh, Joseph Fielding Smith says we are duty-bound to reject it. And so I simply stand up and say, look, this doesn't fit very well. This doesn't mesh with a whole lot of principles. It doesn't mesh with scripture. It doesn't mesh with just the, just the logical end of who's going to be heard and who's going to be confused by these policies that I just felt like I need to stand up and say, you know, this is a policy. Am I allowed to dissent? Because I'm, I am. And we'll see if that, uh, if that's permitted. Are you personally in favor of same-sex marriage? Legally? Um, I personally am in favor of same-sex marriage. And, and let me say this too, John, uh, throw another bone your way. When you and I did the interview, if you remember right, if you remember back then, the, one of the questions you asked me, because I was trying to defend the church on this issue, you asked me, well, Bill, let me ask you personally, if, if your stake president asked you to live a celibate life and to no longer be intimate with your spouse or with anybody of, uh, of the opposite gender, could you do it? And if you remember, I kind of stammered on that question and tried to – Tried to kind of avoid it. And after that interview ended, I had to think long and hard about that question. And uh, the conclusion I came to was that if I'm going to be completely honest, 
there's no way that I would live the rest of my life celibate, not being intimate with someone of the opposite gender. And if I couldn't do it, then I would be a hypocrite for asking any of my gay brothers and sisters to do that. And so from that interview forward, um, I'm not going to sit here and say the church is wrong in terms of homosexuality being uh, a sin. In fact, I'd, much, I'd probably much rather phrase it as a transgression. And, and maybe we're getting off track here, but one of the things I would want to throw out is that we also have a commandment in the scriptures where God says it is not good for man to be alone. And whereas Adam and Eve were placed in a garden with two impossible choices, and they had to, by keeping one, break the other, I think in many ways our homosexual, uh, our LGBT brothers and sisters are in that same predicament where they either have to choose to be alone, which God said is not good, or they have to choose to do something that at present we believe God says is sin. And so when they break one, they have to break one to keep the other. And if they keep one, they have to break the other. And to me, that just seems like an impossibility uh, for me. And so from that interview forward, I've been a uh, a supporter of our LGBT brothers and sisters in the sense that I validate them, I empathize with them, and I want them to know that whatever choice they make, I want them to find peace uh, in this life um, rather than torment themselves and bank on the next. And there's also the teaching that, that man is that he might have joy. And I can tell you from my research that uh, living a life of celibacy or a mixed orientation marriage for most LGBT people represents the opposite of joy. Right. And and once we start recognizing the spectrum of things that occur with people as they're in the womb and afterward with, with transgender and, and hermaphrodites and, and all the multiple possibilities that happen, all of a sudden when you really look at this issue – it's a lot messier. It's not like it's you know black or white and you're either this or you're that. Rather, there's a whole spectrum of ways that we as human beings can turn out. And, and I think in some ways the way in which we've dealt with this issue kind of largely ignores that complexity. Yeah. I think another term for uh, hermaphrodites is intersex. Is that right? That, is that the the term? I don't know. I'm not. Yeah. Uh, I'm not performing surgery later today, so I don't know anything about. <laughs> no, I think it's. Terms, uh, I think they're. I think they prefer these days the term intersex. Um, okay, and my apologies. No, 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 it's good. It's good. Sure. I think. Uh, I think people associate hermaphrodites with like earthworms. <laughs> so. Gotcha. Yeah, yeah. No, that's good. I appreciate that. I appreciate your willingness to, you know, admit it. Admit that you've you've changed a bit. Let me ask you this. Um, I mean, if you really strip down modern, uh, you know, Mormonism, the, the LDS church, I, I think really if you had to distill it to one thing, it's authority. Basically, they've shown, you know, you, you don't see new revelation, you know, you don't see, uh, um, you, you don't see us clinging to a lot of our most distinctive doctrines. In fact, you see us kind of backpedaling and, and even recently they've now redefined the new and everlasting covenant as not being plural marriage, but it's just being, you know, monogamous, you know, <laughs> ceilings. Um, you know, we're redefining words like virgin to mean things that, 
don't make any sense. And so, you know, what what do we have to cling to if if we become just another sort of Christian Protestant church? I think, you know, my 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 analysis of the modern LDS church is that what they have is modern day prophets and apostles that have privileged communication with God and uh and so that's why we get talks like the 14 you know fundamentals of following the prophet which basically says you know the words of modern prophets trump the words of old prophets and we do best to forget whatever Bruce R. McConkie or, or Brigham Young said and just always follow you know, follow the prophet, follow the, you know, don't go astray. And so that's really what Mormonism is about. And honestly, you know, uh, as long as you don't call Joseph a pedophile, as long as you don't call the church a cult, as long as you don't openly denounce the the Book of Mormon or Book of Abraham as fraud, you're safe, um, except in one area, which is if you if you contradict the brethren. And that's that's probably the most dangerous thing you can do in modern Mormonism. And you can pull out all the quotes you want to. And I've seen I've seen post-Mormons for 10 years, you know, bring to their bishops and stake presidents a quote from Brigham Young that says, you know, I, I worry that the members are going to follow us off a cliff and use your brain. But none of those quotes helped Paul Toscano. None of them helped Michael Quinn. None of them helped... Rock Waterman, me, you know, that's, that's a, that's not a defense that that's not a dog that hunts as they say. And so Bill real, you have to acknowledge that, that you're crossing a dangerous, I mean, you don't have to acknowledge, but I would suggest that you're, you're not only crossing a very dangerous line, which puts you in the potentially in the targets for disciplinary counsel because you're violating what's most sacred to Mormons in 2015, which is authority, you know. Um, but in some ways, you know, this line of reasoning that sort of follows the Denver Snuffer, Rock Waterman path, which I'm not saying you're all the way there, but it's just this idea that um, this is the one true church and the restoration is, you know, God's, you know, manifestation of truth on the earth – and uh, I'm going to disagree and say that the modern brethren are, are astray on really important things, that those things, I, I worry that they're not really reconcilable, that either the brethren are led by God, you know, overall, or they're not. But this idea that the brethren can lead us astray, um, it just makes you wonder, the, the restoration's just small enough in terms of maybe 5 million active Mormons out of 6 or 7 billion people on the earth. If now you're going to tell me that in God's one true church, even as prophets and apostles are getting it wrong on really fundamental issues, it doesn't at some point it just really unravel the whole thing? In some ways, I think you're right. I think it, um, it certainly, certainly the 80% who are seeing things in that simple way can no longer hold on to that. Once we place all that on the table, I uh, in Sunday school this past week, there was an older gentleman in the back. We were having uh, a lesson, and, and the teacher decided to have the policy be the discussion point. And so there were, you know, ninety percent of the room was on one side of that conversation, and then just a few of us raising our hand and offering uh, counter opinions 
to what was being said. And, and this old guy in the very back raises his hand and teacher calls on him. And he goes, you know, I'm just really thankful that the brethren tell me what to think. And I, and I kind of chuckled, although I'm frustrated in the class, I kind of chuckled because that's the adversary's plan is to have us all think the same, have one person just lay out everything and we just raise our hand and agree with it all the time. That's not the Mormonism I love. And, and maybe, maybe, I'm, maybe they won't have me stick around much longer. We'll see. But I believe these men hold keys. I believe these men um, you know, have priesthood. I believe that the, the church is true, maybe not exactly in the way they sometimes frame it or think it is, but that it's true. And what we're going to have to say is, is there room for guys like Bill Real to stand up and dissent against a policy? Can he do that? And when I look at Mormonism, uh, Orson F. Whitney talking about non-members being among the auxiliaries of the church, when I look at the word church, DNC, I think it's 10, says, all who repent and come unto me are of my church. Uh, when we look at uh, the first presidency letter in 1978, where uh, Spencer W. Kimball and the, and the other group there uh, in the first presidency talk about people like Muhammad and Confucius being inspired by God to give moral light to those around him. When Elder Uchtdorf admits we made mistakes, some of which violated doctrine. When the race essay says that the things we taught in the 40s that were a doctrine are now disavowed theories, I think all of that, if we're going to be honest, if we're going to just like open up and say, okay, what does this really mean? What it means is that prophets can and have made serious mistakes on doctrinal issues. And, and they, in, although subtly, they admit so themselves. And so this policy, by them saying this is a policy, not a doctrine, it even has lesser of inspirational weight to it. And, uh, and they're going to have to decide whether people like me can have faith in the church but publicly say I disagree with this policy. And I guess we'll find out in the next six months or year whether they'll permit people who have a testimony, who believe, who understand the messiness of our history. And I've used that word probably a dozen times today. The paradoxes, the contradictions, the times where leaders have claimed revelation only to have another leader, you know, a decade later or a hundred years later say that that guy was off base. Um, I think all of that adds up to say that we get a lot of things wrong. But that still doesn't take away from the fact that we're still the Lord's institution to provide the saving ordinances and to ensure that we provide a way in which people can uh, become more like the Savior as they move through this journey. And, and again, we'll, we'll see. Time will tell. And I'll, you know, and I'll just tell you how it worked for me. The way I think even fair itself works is that when they peg someone as a wolf in sheep's clothing, which you're clearly being pegged as that by people like Brian Hales and Greg, you know, Greg Smith and others, what they end up doing is, is uh, either through the strengthening the members committee or just through their own efforts, they end up reaching out privately to, you know, your Bishop and stake president. They end up feeding them documents that, that, uh, that demonstrate your dissent and it leads to a disciplinary council. Right. And, and I will say that uh, I know for a fact that Brian has asked for who my stake president is so that he can have conversation with him, which I think is completely off base and completely wrong. Um, but I will say this too. I've been open with, when I was in Ohio, uh, my stake president and my bishop were constantly informed of the places I was doing firesides, the subjects I was talking about 
uh, I would constantly send them um, information off of you know articles and things that I was contributing to. Uh, here in St. George, I have sat down with my stake president and sat down and explained why I dissent uh, against this policy. Uh, why um, you know why I'm here in St. George, the the podcast that I do, some of the things that I think. I've shared with him some of my nuanced beliefs. And so I don't know that you know these guys are going to have something handed to them that's going to be fresh and new. I think I've been pretty much an open book. And anything that, uh, that I say about what I think or feel or believe, I've said publicly. Right. So you're willing, so we'll to, see. You're willing to stand by um, your dissent and you think this is a, a, a hill worth taking – and you're just hoping that the church doesn't come after you. I'm open to further light and knowledge. I mean, I'm open to the brethren coming out and saying, we'd like to give you a full explanation. Let me add this too. Had, let's just say, and I don't know what the reasons are behind the scenes for some of this, but let's just say it is a legal reason that's been thrown around. Had the brethren stood up and said, look, we live in a day and age where we have to protect the church uh, in its lega- you know, the legality of it all, and so this policy is in place to do that, and we recognize that this will, you know, will not be will not be a blessing to some, but in the long run, this is the the route we have to take. I would have, you know, certainly t- my head would have probably gone down. I would have been sad, but I would have been like, okay, I get it, totally understand. It's when you come out and say this policy is to protect the children, and then when you look at it in depth, and you realize it, it at least on some level isn't going to do that. Um, I, th- again, I, I just feel like, you know, I'm waiting if they want to explain it better. They want to share why this works, why it fits. I am happy to listen. Um, but, uh, so far it seems like they're content with the explanation they've given. And to me and to tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of other Latter-day Saints, that isn't quite working right now. Right. So you're basically saying the brethren aren't being totally honest about their reasons. But I would also value the fact that we all need to, at times, couch the things we say or not be fully transparent. Let me give an example I've always used in the podcast, which is, John, when you went on your first date with your wife, did you tell her all the flaws that you had? And, and your answer would be obviously no. I mean, I didn't just sit down and list all, the, you know, all my negatives. I think on some level, the church has a right to, to kind of couch some of that. But at the end of the day, what they say publicly and how they mesh things publicly is my – is what I have to go off of. And so the reasons they've given me don't fit. And for those reasons, I dissent against the policy. And so why not do what many of your apologetic colleagues do and just say, I don't understand anything, everything, but I trust the brethren and I'm not going to publicly dissent because – these men are good men, they're inspired, and they know more than I do, so I'm just going to trust that and not dissent. Because I, I look at what this policy is going to do to individual people, and it's already hurting people, and I already know of lives that have been taken because of it. And I think at the end of the day, Mormonism, if it really truly is going to thrive – 100 years, 500 years into the future, then it's going to have to come to grips with what it really means that 15 men in a room that we believe are led by the Savior, also those same 15 minute times in our history 
have made very serious errors in doctrine or that the prophet himself has made serious errors in doctrine thinking that he has received a revelation only to be told by a later prophet that he's wrong. Those are things that we're going to have to come to grips with and talk about and reconcile how we, how we move forward as a faith dealing with that elephant in the room that anytime something is said or done, it could just as easily be a mistake like those things that were in the past. And so Mormonism, I think, just needs to grow up a little bit. So for you, it's it's that too many LGBT brothers and sisters are are uh, depressed and suffering from uh, you know being marginalized and, and judged and driven to suicidality over these types of policies. The the church's role is to bring all unto Christ, and aside from what is sin or what is not sin. To some segments of our membership, we, we provide a path that is – to 99% of them is just untenable. And to the 1% who does it, um, God bless them. But it just seems like we're establishing a route or a path that, uh, that doesn't really accomplish the mission of the church to those people. And so in some ways, whether something sin or isn't – I mean we have members in our ward who – broke the word of wisdom and we still gave them callings. We had a brother in our ward in Ohio and when I was just ending being bishop and our new bishop came in, uh, the brother was a non-member. The wife – actually, wasn't even a wife. She, they, were, they were living together. He was married to another woman that was separated from but they had never gotten officially divorced. They were living together. Uh, she wasn't a member and yet we still allowed – or he wasn't a member. I'm sorry. We still allowed them to participate. We still allowed them to hold callings. We still allowed them to – to be active in the church, we still made them feel like like the church wanted them and that we were going to provide ways to include them even if the doctrine said what they were doing was sin. And uh, and I think on this issue, we've drawn a line in the sand and said we were going to refuse to do that. And I my point would be is if this church's goal is truly to bring all into Christ, then we ought to recognize that we all fall short of the glory of God and that the church's job is to pick us up where we are and to help us be better. Yeah. Well, I think uh, it's a courageous thing you're doing, and I hope it uh, ends better for you than it did for me. <laughs> I hope so. I hope so. I want to be here. I, I, you know, I have a testimony of the church, but I'm not, you know, I'm not naive enough to know that other people, uh, D. Michael Quinn, for instance, who had testimonies of the church, the church still saw that the most appropriate route was to remove them uh, from the group. And uh, so perhaps that happens, and I'm not naive enough to think that I can avoid that if if they want that to occur. I just hope that they will sit back and say, you know, guys, it's time for us to to recognize that, uh, you know, all this, all this stuff means something and that people on some level have to have a right to disagree on some of these things without us threatening to sever them from the group, and uh, we'll see what happens. Yeah, we will see. And um, at some point, they'll need to stop the disciplinary councils. So I hope I hope those are a thing of the past. Right. Me too. All right, Bill Real, tell us the URL for your podcast. The URL is mormondiscussionpodcast.org. Uh, you can go there. Again, it's set up like all these other ones. Uh, John, I just don't have uh, you know a third of the episodes you've got. You've done a wonderful job. Uh, 
I think, for our community. But that's the podcast URL, and uh, hopefully a few people will check it out. All right, Bill. Well, good luck. And uh, if if you end up, uh, you know, running on the on the you know not so good side of things, let, you know, let us bring you back, and we can talk about your experiences. Sounds good, my friend. Um, and do you think you'll tell your Bishop and Stake president about your stand, or do you think you'll let let Brian Hales do that? Well, I've already told my bishop in my stake president, I sent them an email telling them why I disagree with this policy and that it was causing me to rethink how I'm going to interact with the church going forward. Um, I'm looking for other ways outside of the faith to to find some spiritual nourishment, not that I'm joining another church, not that I'm leaving the one I'm in, just that I've got to find some peace of mind and I'm looking for ways to do that meditation and, and visiting other churches just to see what they're like. And, and, uh, you know, my Bishop and stake president are very clear on where I stand. Hmm. All right. Good brother. Well, keep up, keep up the good fight and please keep us posted. Thank you. Have a great day. All right. Thanks bill. And, and to listeners, thanks for joining us on Mormon stories. Please uh, go up and post your question or concerns. Bill, I'll tell you, I can guarantee you Brian and Laura Hales or one or the other will come up and try and defend themselves. And you guys can have a lovely battle in the comments section if you so choose. But if other listeners as well want to provide feedback or questions uh, for Bill, maybe Bill, you'll check back in, in the comments section and answer some of their questions. Absolutely. I'll be happy to kind of stay tuned and see how it goes. All right. And all the listeners who provide us financial support, thanks for that. It's what keeps us going. So um, please, uh, so so thanks for joining us on Warmer Stories, and please check us out again soon. Take care, Bill. Thank you, sir. Thanks for joining us today on Mormon Stories. If you enjoyed this episode, please help us make more like it by becoming a monthly subscriber at mormonstories.org. Music for this episode was provided by the Lower Lights. When other sources cease to 